You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Mammal Watching podcast with me, John Hall in New York. And me, Charles Foley in Minneapolis. John, I understand that you are just about to start a trip to Europe. I am. I'm going off to see my kids and more importantly, to see some mammals. And then even more importantly, to see you and some mammal watchers in Spain, Charles. Yes, indeed. We will meet up in uh, near Oviedo uh, in the north of Spain for the inaugural Mammal Watchers uh, meeting. So that should be a lot of fun. Very exciting. Yes, I hope to see some of your you listeners there. Indeed. So without further ado, we will move right ahead into introducing our next guest. So today I'm delighted to welcome a good friend, Dr. Rob Shoemaker, to the podcast. Now, Rob is a man of many talents. He is a world-renowned primatologist with a main focus on great apes. He's a widely published author with several books on primates and conservation. He supervises graduate students at Indiana University. He has a fascination with reptiles. And on top of all that, he is also president and CEO of the Indianapolis Zoo, which is rapidly becoming a major force in global conservation. Rob, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you both. I am immensely pleased to be a guest. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited. Um, now, what, what's interesting, um, Rob, is that when we've spoken to other mammal watchers, um, it's interesting to hear just how many of them were inspired by visiting zoos when they were children. Um, and in fact, uh, John, I don't know if you remember that we had three guests in a row. That was Russ Mittermeier, who, of course, uh, Rob, you know well, uh, Lisa Daybeck, and Alex Meyer all mention um, their interest in wildlife started by visiting the Bronx Zoo as children. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, Rob, how did your interest in wildlife start and what was the path that led you to becoming president of the Indianapolis Zoo? Well, Charles, I, I can tell you that I can affirm that that perception. So many people uh, tell me that their first experiences and their pivotal experiences uh, of getting into a career related to conservation or science or biology all started by going to the zoo uh, when they were young. Uh, and as you might anticipate, a lot of people ask me, how did I get started? How did I get interested? And, and my answer is honest, um, but it doesn't it sound particularly exciting. I, I just can't ever remember being interested in anything else. It's it's the only thing I ever wanted to do. Uh, my earliest memories were having a, a fascination with animals, um, frankly, all animals. Um, and thank goodness it worked out. I don't know what else I would be doing if if <laughs> if it if it didn't work for me. But I generally have no other recollection at all. Uh, and my 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 family affirms it. They say, "No, that's that's all you ever talked about. It's all you ever wanted to do." Um, and I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but in fact, it's it's true. Um, and uh, I've heard it from some of your guests, and of course, some of my colleagues and and coworkers all say the same thing. It's it's the only thing they ever remember uh, really wanting to do with their lives. But how did you? I mean, that's, that's fantastic. So to have had that dream since you can remember and to, and to be living it now, but, but what are the steps to becoming a zoo director? Did you, did you study 
zoo direction in university or what, <laughs> how did you do that? Um, uh, amazingly, I did not. So <laughs> what, what, uh, I, I would say that um, uh, I do feel remarkably fortunate because I, of course, know people who um, don't have any clear interests or any clear passion and work for them is a, is a drudgery. Uh, um, and, and I genuinely look forward to what I get to do every single day. And I'm so privileged for that. I, I think where I would start in terms of how I, how I got for, how I went forward with my career, um, I was very, very fortunate, uh, to grow up with, with a mother who thought it was a wonderful idea, um, for me to study animals or, or to care about animals. I think in a, in a different era, um, uh, that's a career my mom would have chosen. And I think, uh, hmm. when I've asked her, I asked her, she is, she is, uh, passed away now, but, um, when I would ask her, uh, she, she would have wanted to be, um, a field researcher. She would have loved to go into the wild and, and study animals. Um, uh, and so she thought it was a wonderful idea. And I, I never once heard growing up, um, as unfortunately, I think so many people do. Oh, well, that's ridiculous. You need to find something that, you know, think about business or think about something where you can make a good salary. I never heard that once. It, and uh, I've known so many people that get derailed uh, because they don't get that kind of support from a parent or a spouse or whatever. Um, so uh, for me, Uh, I grew up in the D.C. area, so we spent many hours at the National Zoo. That was really our only um, opportunity to see wildlife, uh, and this was um, in the late '60s and, and early '70s when I was when I was a young child. So um, uh, again, going going back to my mom, uh, years later, I said, "You know, isn't it funny? I I I don't remember anything about the National Zoo." except the great apes. That was the only, that's the only thing I really remember. I remember parking the car. I remember being around the great apes and I remember going back to the car. I said, isn't that odd? And my mom's response was, it's not odd at all because that's the only thing we did. <laughs> yeah, we, would, we would get out of the car, go to the apes. She would pack a lunch uh, and we would sit with the apes for hours and, and then leave. And she said, we really didn't go anywhere else. We really didn't visit any other parts of the zoo. And part of that was because it was her interest, but but also because it was my interest. And of course, in those days, I, I still think that's fairly remarkable because there wasn't much interesting to look at. Those were the old days with uh, apes living in essentially a bathroom, you know, blue tiled walls and a tire hanging on chain and um bars in the front and that was it a single ape sitting there and doing very little um certainly days that that i'm 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 happy are long gone um uh but it was endlessly fascinating to me so i i uh when i was moving into high school um i i looked for advice on how i could do this and of course there was there was not um, a lot to know at that time. There's much more information available now. But I think like everyone else, the, the advice I was given um, 
by well-meaning people was, well, well, you need to be a veterinarian if you want to work with animals. Mm -hmm. So I was the, um, the first person in my extended family to attend college. And so that, that was still a little bit mysterious. I didn't have anyone who really knew about that that could guide me. Um, and so um, uh, in high school, I got a job at a veterinary clinic, um, went off to college, back to the, back to the point of being the, the first one in my family to do that. Um, I was completely and totally unprepared financially for what college involved I was putting myself through um, and rapidly realized that that wasn't going to work. So I came back to the DC area, was able to get a full-time job working um, as a keeper at the National Zoo and um, started going to school part-time. Uh, so I finished my, to, to fast forward, I finished my uh, undergraduate and my master's and my PhD all in evolutionary biology. I, I finished all of those while I was working full-time at the National Zoo, um, which is not what I would recommend to someone to do, um, although it has worked out just fine for me, but um, it, it made me a very old PhD student, that's for sure. Uh, but the, the, the part of it was that um, I was able to have uh, one foot in the academic side and one foot in the practical side simultaneously. And I genuinely think that was unbelievably beneficial for me. Uh, because I was I was able to see things from both perspectives, um, and I think it made me a much much better scientist. Um, and uh, wound up being a, a a working scientist at the National Zoo, which is part of the Smithsonian, studying um, cognitive abilities of of great apes, uh, primarily orangutans, also gorillas, and even a little bit with African oh sorry Asian elephants at the time, a little bit with Asian elephants. Um, and then um, from there, had the opportunity to move to a, a brand new facility uh, in Des Moines, Iowa. So uh, I jumped at the chance. Uh, we had only great apes there, orangutans and bonobos. Um, I ran all the research with bonobos, cognitive research only, behavioral and cognitive research. Um, I was there for seven years and then was recruited from there to come to the Indianapolis Zoo. And I've been here now for about 13 years. And I became the president and CEO of the zoo here uh, in January of 2020. Uh, so it, 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 as you can tell from, from that brief overview, um, I, I like to stay. So I was at the National Zoo for 20-ish years uh, in Iowa for seven years and now 13 years at the Indianapolis Zoo and I, and I uh, anticipate and hope that this is the job I will retire from. That's an amazing story. <clears throat> so driven from uh, that purpose from, from the very beginnings of your life. Um, so you, you talked about some of the work you've done with great apes and orangutans um, and the, co the cognitive research. What are some of your most interesting findings on that? It must be fascinating stuff. Uh, from the cognitive research? Yeah, from the cognitive research or the social behavior. Boy, it's, it's a great question. Um, uh, my research with great apes has always focused on one specific area, and that is uh, their ability to use and understand symbols. So how do they go about acquiring 
understanding and then using um, symbols that represent all kinds of things, could represent um, the names of food, the names of objects, verbs, uh, numbers, um, uh, you name it, any, any kind of symbolic representation. Um, and that has been always uh, incredibly interesting to me, coming largely out of um, a fascination with the language projects that involved primarily chimpanzees historically, but of course also uh, uh, gorillas, orangutans, and bonobos. But most of those projects involved chimpanzees. Uh, and I was always quite fascinated with that. But by the time I was able to do research on my own, uh, I think the question had become not so interesting about ape language in the sense that everybody focused on are they capable of language or not? And, and the answer is resoundingly yes, they are capable of language, uh, not to the same level of sophistication that, for example, you and I are using right now, but they absolutely can do it. And, and so there is, to me, no real question to be answered when you frame it as a yes or no. But I think the big overall finding, there's all kinds of individual small findings that, that are interesting, but, but the big take-homes to me um, that, that I think are really quite relevant are that um, there is wild variation among individuals from even the same parents that grew up in exactly the same circumstances and background in terms of cognitive skills. Uh, so we we tend to think of, you know, quote unquote orangutans or quote unquote gorillas. Nothing could be further than the truth. There's no such thing as defining them by, by their species. They, they're dramatically different from individual to individual in terms of the rates they learn, what they like working on, how how consistent they are at the tasks. Um, and, and they're is no easy way to explain it. It is, there are no trends associated with gender. I can't say, oh, males are better than females or females are better than males, it doesn't work. That there are no trends associated with age. That, that was a big preconception that still exists in the literature that younger apes learn better and faster than older apes. It's not true, certainly not in my research. Um, uh, and then the other one that, this one still stuns me. It doesn't matter how much experience an ape has in cognitive testing. When you provide them with a new task that's unfamiliar, th there's no benefit to how experienced they are. They're, they're starting fresh and are no better off than any other individual, even if they've done cognitive testing for years and years. It's really very, very task dependent. So I think what it did for me is really helped me understand, and this is any of the great apes, they're all remarkably different. They're all incredibly unique as individuals, surprisingly so, uh, meaning even if they come from exactly the same circumstances and parents, they're remarkably different as individuals. And further, and this is not just from my research, but from understanding the literature, when it, when it comes to cognitive abilities or mental skills with great apes, there is nothing distinctive when you compare them with humans. And I mean it in this way, um, all of 
the mental skills and abilities that are present in humans are also present in all of the great apes, although there may be differences in degree. So the, the way I would phrase it is when it comes to comparing humans and the other great apes, there are no uh, uh, differences in kind, only differences in degree. I know of no ability in humans that is not also represented in other great apes. And I really wish that I had been the person to first discover that. Um, I think both, both of you may have heard of the person who, who first suggested that, a guy named Charles Darwin. So that, that came, that's a very old idea that, that I think lots of people have forgotten about. Um, but I would say it's quite true. But the last thing that I that I would tell you is, um, and uh, it is surprising when I consider my own career. Um, I never really had early in my career. I had virtually no exposure to conservation, uh, no particular interest or expertise in it, and it just wasn't an emphasis professionally for me or my colleagues early in my career, things have changed dramatically, of course. Um, but I would say for me, cognitive studies with orangutans were my entree to caring about um, conservation of biodiversity. And here's why. I became so amazed at the individuals that I was working with um, obsessed maybe with understanding more about them and, and thinking more about their personalities and their mental skills and so on. And then it's slowly dawning on me that any orangutan could do these things. It, it was, I just happened to be fortunate enough to work with a, a few individuals. But then I started thinking about orangutans in the wild and realizing the, the, the devastation that was being wreaked on their habitats and their populations. Now this was into the, into the 1990s um, and that they were literally being decimated um, in the forests of Southeast Asia. And, and I thought, how, could I, how can I not care? I, I must do something about it. I must be committed. I must care about it because I was thinking of them through how, through the way I knew the individuals that I worked with. And it, it, it was just a, a revelation to me to say, while I care deeply about cognitive research, conservation has to become a priority in, in terms of my efforts. And, and it grew directly out of that. Um, so I guess really what I'm, what I'm saying is I'm answering a little bit how I got to where I am today, not in terms of, um, a job or, or responsibilities, but but philosophically, what are the things that for me are are real priorities um, that I can focus on personally and also in in my role as a as a zoo CEO? Yeah, no, um, I completely get it. I mean, we could talk all day and all the rest of the week. I think on cognitive, you know, great apes and, and this work, it's absolutely fascinating. But one just super quick follow up question: You, you spoke about the. Um, there was no real difference in the abilities of great apes vis-a-vis -vis people, maybe in the scale, but not really in the, the things they could do. Would you say the same is true for the 
the character traits of great apes. Like, let's talk about the seven deadly sins or deadly vices of human character. Do great apes share all of those as well? You know, it's you know a, far too common in people. Yeah, it's such a great question. So I, while I again would would strongly defend this this idea of comparing humans and other great apes, and I and I should be saying humans and other great apes, not humans and great apes, that. Um, uh, the mental differences are, are if if there are mental differences, they are in degree, not in kind. You know, I, I suddenly start to get very um, hesitant when we talk about, for example, seven deadly sins or um, anything in, in that regard, because at least for humans, that, that implies um, questions about morality. And uh, I don't ever apply those kind of standards to great apes. Mm. Uh, in fact, I would say that, and I have a copy of it and I can't remember the date. I, I remember when Time Magazine published a photo of a mountain gorilla that had been uh, killed in Rwanda. Mm. And they, they called, and I don't remember which one it was, uh, maybe it was Digit, uh, and they, and the, and the headline was the murder of this mountain gorilla. And I thought, boy, that's interesting because I've never seen any major media refer to the killing of a non-human as a murder. Uh, and, and I think that was a, a real shift at the time in terms of public perception. Um, people started to expand those qualities a bit. Now, by the same token, if, if well, I'll use a gorilla. If, if a gorilla injured or, or, or killed a person, I would never call that assault or murder. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wouldn't apply that morality ever to a, a non-human. So when it comes to those issues, I, I really hesitate to think about animal behavior in those terms. Um, and, and, it, and it kind of leads to a much broader topic for me that, that I'm really sensitized to. And I think it's largely not caused by social media, but has been revealed through social media that, that the majority of people um, don't know how to interpret animal behavior outside of their own perspective. So um, uh, it, it, it's just um, remarkable to me how often people um, make assumptions about animal intentions and um, assertions about, oh, the animal's thinking this, the animal's thinking that. So when, when probably none of that's true. So Rob, I'm sure, um lots of strange things have happened over the years working in zoos, especially with great apes, but could you tell us um, one or two interesting stories you've had from your work in the zoo world? I, I can, and um, when it comes to um, great apes, I, I'll tell you two. One, one is very short and the other one's slightly longer, um, and both involve orangutans. Uh, there's one orangutan that I work with uh, named Katie. Uh, and uh, 
she is she is known for having uh, the very best hair of any orangutan I've ever seen. It is absolutely salon quality. <laughs> and she is spectacularly beautiful. Uh, and we have a wonderful, wonderful report. And, and this was a number of years ago. I've, I've worked with her now for about, uh, I guess, 15, 16 years. Um, th there was a day that we were interacting. She was on one side of the mesh. I was on the other side of the mesh. And she was feeling very playful. And, and that meant she wanted to try and like have me tickle her hands and she would tickle my hands. And uh, we were playing back and forth and she was having a good time. I was having a good time. And, um, and all of a sudden she flipped her lip, bottom lip open. And I saw a glint of, of something in there that was metallic. And I, I didn't know what it was, but of course, you know, if, if a nape starts showing you pieces of metal, that's concerning because you don't know what they're taking apart or you don't know if, if they could hurt themselves. So I looked at her and she was being very playful. And I said, what is that? And she reached in her mouth and pulled out my wedding ring and showed it to me and put it back in her mouth. <laughs> and as we were playing, I had no clue. She had stolen my wedding ring off my finger put it in her mouth and I never realized it happened and I think I sounded a little bit like a child because I was so shocked I I literally I said give me that and so she pulled it out of her mouth and threw it out at me and it landed on the floor and she acted immensely pleased with herself uh, and I thought it was extraordinary that she had done that bit of sleight of hand and I never never even knew that it had happened. So I do have it back, it's still on my finger. Um, uh, the, the other story that I can tell you about orangutans and, and th there's a couple of things, normally exciting stories about great apes involve um, escapes. And um, when you work at the zoo, and this is true for me, the, the most important thing to say first is I was off that day, but here's what happened um, so that uh, I can immediately say I was not responsible. So uh, I, I wasn't actually off. I was working in another part of the zoo that day, but I happened to be, this is the National Zoo. And this is documented. This, is, there, this was covered in the media, so I know it's true. And I saw it. Uh, as I was walking uh, down the hallway in the building, I was just passing through the building, there was a door that looked into the outdoor yard where the orangutans were that had a little window. And I looked out the window and there was an adult female who still lives at the National Zoo. Her name is Bonnie. Um, and she was levitating. And it was remarkable. She was sitting and levitating. And I thought, I, I didn't know how to understand what I was seeing. So I did the tip, I looked away, I said, no, no, I'm just not seeing her. I looked back out the window and she was still levitating. And as I stared at her, the hair on the back of my neck started to go up because I realized what looked like levitating was actually her sitting in a planter on the public side of the glass. Oh. 
Uh, so she was about three feet off the ground and I was seeing her through glass as she was sitting with hundreds of people surrounding her. At the time, she had an infant that was maybe just a few weeks old and people were coming up and touching the baby and stroking the baby. <laughs> and um, I then realized there were no orangutans in the yard and there should have been several. And so I immediately uh, uh, did what I was supposed to do. I got on the radio, I called everyone, I walked outside and I couldn't find any orangutans, except Bonnie who was sitting there with lots of people around her. So I immediately asked the people to move away. And then I'm not quite sure from where other orangutans started to, to appear all in the public area. and. I looked down and there were no orangutans in the yard, but what I noticed is they had taken uh, two 55 gallon plastic barrels out into the yard, stacked them up and just climbed out. So some fantastic tool use. Um, fast forward, they weren't supposed to have the barrels out in the yard, but a new person was working that day and hadn't quite thought that through um, and let them take them outside. Well, they got out. Well, Bonnie and her baby, a male named Kiko, um, uh, left. So of course, Kiko was hanging on her and she just climbed onto the roof of the building and disappeared. Couldn't see her, didn't know where she was. Uh, the interesting thing, of course, is none of the other orangutans could get back in the yard because what we realized was the last one out had inadvertently knocked the barrel off so they couldn't climb back in. So they were all stranded out with the visitors. So our vets arrived, which was a little bit intimidating uh, for the orangutans and, and they decided to risk it. So they hung on the wall and dropped down much further than they normally would have. They, we got them all back. We still couldn't find Bonnie. She eventually appeared on the roof and descended down into the yard and went inside. And that's not the exciting part of the story. What, what happened was we went up on the roof to see if she had damaged anything. And we found um, a cooler and a bucket of chicken bones and an empty gallon of orange juice. And we were perplexed. And then we looked in the yard and started seeing all kinds of trash like uh, plastic cups and wrappers and, and whatever. And none of us had any clue what was going on. And, and by at this point, it was three or four in the afternoon. So while I was cleaning up the yard, helping finish up, a visitor came up to the yard and said, did you get those apes back? And we said, well, yeah. And, and they said, yeah, we, we saw them out here. And I, I said it nicely, but I said, did it occur to you that maybe you should tell somebody that, that they shouldn't be out there wandering around with visitors? And they said, no, no, never. I, I thought it was fine. And, and I said, well, why, 
why did you think it was fine? And they said, well, you, you don't know, they've been doing this for several hours today. And we said, no, they said, oh, they were in and out probably like a dozen times all morning. They'd, wow. they'd, they'd climb up and when someone wasn't looking, they'd reach out and, and take their food and then carry it back into the yard and finish it. And, and that's where all the, the souvenir cups had come from. Someone was sitting on a bench enjoying a drink and the orangutan would come up quietly beside them and just remove the drink and take it back in the yard and finish it. And the, the person told us, they said, yeah, they took somebody's cooler of fried chicken. So they took the entire cooler that was full of fried chicken and a gallon of orange juice and took it up onto the roof of the building and had a picnic and then came back down and continued to do that all day long. So that was um, interesting enough that the Washington Post actually did a, a, a front page story in their style section about that. Uh, and I think ultimately the orangutans had a wonderful time. They, they enjoyed it immensely, um, weren't very hungry at the end of the day. Uh, but luckily, um, nobody was injured. Nobody had a problem. All of the apes were fine. Both ape and visitors were all fine. And the rest of us were, um, frankly, not very surprised, but extremely shaken by the whole experience. Uh, and that is the, the, the most dramatic um, great ape escape I've ever been involved in. Wow. Amazing. That's crazy. <laughs> um, so, Rob, zoos um, have historically played an important role in preventing species extinction. So you can think of species like the European bison, Przewalski's horse, goldeneye tamarind, which basically would not be here if it was not for being taken into captivity. Um, but that means that with any of these species, first of all, you have to bring them into captivity, and then you have to learn how to breed them. And I was wondering how difficult that is to actually break the sort of breeding code for most, most species. Um, are there still many species which don't breed in captivity? It's, it's so interesting um, that you asked that, Charles. And, and of course, I, I agree strongly with you um, that, that accredited zoos have, have been phenomenally important um, in saving a number of species and in promoting a whole variety of conservation efforts. Uh, you know, breeding is one of those interesting things because, and at least in the United States, I and I think these comments can be generally um, expanded to um, the European zoos, a lot of the uh, uh, Australian zoos and so on, a lot of the Asian zoos. I, I can't speak with the same level of detail to those, but, but you know, accredited zoos share a lot of things in common around the globe, but what I know best are, are the ones here in North America. Um, uh, we don't take animals out of the wild for our zoos, and, and we haven't done that for decades. Um, using orangutans as an example, the last orangutan to come out of the wild that, that went to a zoo in the United States was, was almost 50 years ago. So sometime in the early 70s, and that was the very last one. Um, all of our populations are self-sustaining. Um, the only exceptions are that we will take animals, for example, for welfare reasons. So a, a stranded sea lion that 
that can't be released um, can come into a zoo. There are uh, cases um, that, that I think could fairly be described as controversial of animals that were going to be culled in the wild, like African elephants or polar bears, um, or, uh, black bears, brown bears, um, that instead were, were brought um, into zoo settings. Um, but by and large, that, that's not how we acquire our animals. We, we do it through self-sustaining breeding populations. Uh, and it's an interesting question to answer because we, we've likely tilted towards the species that are easy to reproduce um, in, in terms of having them. Now, there are some with challenges, that's for sure, but I would say most species in accredited zoos, mammals and birds, for example, gosh, I, it would be true for reptiles and amphibians. Um, probably the ones that are an exception would be fishes. Probably very difficult for uh, some types of fishes, particularly marine. Um, but we don't have really huge challenges with most of the species that we have. Um, certainly you can find those examples, but, but, but by and large, we maintain good social groups. We focus on um, mother rearing of, of most species. Again, when I'm talking about mammals, by and large, um, unless there's a medical issue or some serious behavioral issue, uh, mothers raise their own offspring, and, and that sets you up for success socially long-term, that those individuals become very socially competent and reproductively competent and so on. Um, so while I, I, it certainly would be um, unfair for me to, to pretend like there are never issues, there are, of course, but, but by and large, I, I would say it's, um, reproduction is, is, is fairly reliable for many, if not most, of the, of the species we have in zoos, particularly mammals. So, I mean, that, that leads on to the question about the, the zoo's role in, in conservation beyond breeding more generally. And I, um, I know that the zoo is now one of the world leaders in wildlife conservation. Um, so what does that really mean in practice and how did this transition, transition happen? Yeah, I can, I can certainly speak in detail about the Indianapolis Zoo. I, I, I can also confidently say in general, um, the, the accredited zoos, the AZA accredited zoos in the United States um, are remarkably focused on supporting field conservation. And, and, and they, they do that directly. Um, when I say supporting conservation, I don't mean, for example, having some um, signage at an exhibit that, that talks about conservation. I mean, well, that's a good thing, of course, but what I'm referring to is specifically providing resources in some way, usually money, um, for someone who's doing uh, uh, field conservation work. Um, I know that on an average year, more than $200 million flows from the accredited zoos in the United States to conservation projects around the world. Um, I can say that for us, we approach conservation, um, our, we approach our commitment to conservation um, in, in four specific ways. And all of this is entirely consistent with our mission statement, which is, which is simple. Our, our zoo protects nature and inspires people to care about our world. That's, that's what we're here to do. Um, and we have about 
1,200,000 visitors to the zoo here every year. And that's where we start. We start with our on-grounds programming um, so that people get great information, uh, have great interactions with our staff, all, all types of staff here um, that talk to them about conservation and our efforts. We also want them um, to have experiences with our animals, and I love the phrase, experiences that are authentically wondrous. And, and that's everything from a, from a flamingo uh, uh, to a giraffe, uh, to a hellbender, you know, to, to an orangutan. We, we, we want people to just be enthralled. We've looked at um, our visitor survey data here and we know with confidence, and, and, and this is just not an opinion, we have the data to show that those experiences uh, significantly change people's attitudes toward supporting field conservation. Um, so that's where we begin. We begin with our on-grounds interpretation. The second thing that we do is a significant portion of our operating budget, hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, um, is sent directly to field conservation projects around the world. Um, uh, th th this money goes directly into the hands of the people who are doing the work to conserve species, um, you name it, we're, we're, we're all over the place, Africa, Asia, so on. Um, but we also do that right here at home. We've focused on projects uh, that are specific to Indiana species, everything from uh, invertebrates to um, large mammals, um, it, it, it's, it's all equally important to us. So that, that's one and two. The third way um, is the Indianapolis Prize. So uh, every two years, uh, the Indianapolis Zoo identifies an exceptional conservationist, and, and, and we are very specific. It's about an individual. It's not about an organization or a team or so on. It's about an individual who has done remarkable work to save a species or a group of species. Uh, uh, one that I, I, I think has already been a guest, uh, one of the recipients of the Indianapolis Prize is Russ Mittermeier, mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the champions of, of conservation, one of the greatest conservationists of our generation. Um, those are the kind of people that we highlight. Um, so every two years, we, we focus on a recipient for the Indianapolis Prize. It's a competitive process, a juried process. Uh, and we invest heavily in promoting that person's work. Uh, I, I should mention that they also receive uh, a $250,000 cash award um, that, that they appear to enjoy very much. And that... Um, uh, uh, it is an important part of this process, making sure we're supporting uh, their work. Um, they go on a, a national speaking tour. And in a typical cycle now, we reach more than 3 billion, with a B, 3 billion media impressions related to the recipient of the Indianapolis Prize. We've expanded that a bit. We have two awards that are associated with that. One is the Jane Alexander Global Wildlife Ambassador Award. This is a, a public persona 
who uses their influence to directly benefit conservation. We, we give them an award, highlight their work. Past recipients have been uh, Jane Alexander, of course, um, Sigourney Weaver for her work with mountain gorillas, uh, Harrison Ford, who's an unbelievably committed conservationist, but does it really under the radar. Uh, most recently, uh, the Prince of Monaco, who has had a tremendous personal commitment to marine conservation um, and uh, has been a model for what people in power can do to promote uh, a conservation ethic. And then the other one that we are adding to this, and this is the very first year, and I'm, and I'm um, pleased that um, talking to you coincides with uh, an announcement um, for our new Emerging Conservationist Award. Um, we are um, maybe completing the circle is one way to look at it here. We are, we are uh, finding and supporting someone who is newer in their career. It, you have to be under 40 to qualify. Um, and uh, uh, this is a person who is um, doing a phenomenal job at saving a species or group of species. And uh, we have just identified our 10 finalists, and one of them uh, will receive the inaugural Emerging Conservationist Award um, in September of 2023. Then our very last thing that we do here at the zoo to, to promote conservation um, is uh, very new for us. Uh, we have a, a collaboration with the IUCN um, uh, SSC. And uh, that's the Species Survival Commission. Thank you very much. Yeah. So we are we are working with the Species Survival Commission and their associated um, specialist groups uh, to promote and organize that work. And so what we've done is we've created a new department here at the zoo, uh, uh, ten people strong, and it's organized uh, uh, largely taxonomically, but also by ecosystem. So for example, we have a mammals coordinator, a bird coordinator, an invertebrate coordinator, a plant coordinator, but we also have a freshwater coordinator, marine coordinator. And, and their purpose is solely to work with the specialist groups of the IUCN Species Survival Commission and help organize and amplify their efforts so that they can be more and more effective. Now that's a permanent new department here. So that uh, my, my new favorite word is, is in association with all this is constellation. So that is the constellation of, of efforts that we have um, to be true to our mission of protecting nature and inspiring people to care about our world. So, Rob, if you were to project uh, 30, 40, maybe even 50 years down the line, um, what do you think the future zoos are going to look like because obviously zoos have changed massively uh, in the last 50 last 100 years so what's what does that look like to you yeah it's such an interesting thing to consider and 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 i i would say even in my own lifetime um uh zoos are almost unrecognizable to what i remember as a kid um and that's a good thing zoos have changed only for the better um i i think my my predictions are are probably maybe as short as maybe 10 to 20 years away and, th and then going forward. And again, I, I can speak really only to the US in this regard. Um, I think there's a couple big trends that are gonna happen. One, I think there's gonna be uh, many, many fewer zoos in the future. 
Um, and, and, and I would say, and this may be a surprise to, to some people listening, um, but there are at least a couple thousand zoos that are licensed by USDA in the United States. The, the US Department of Agriculture um, licenses all uh, public animal facilities, for example. Um, and the majority of, of those zoos um, uh, are, are ones that, that I would be concerned about. The, the non-accredited zoos, remember there's about 240, 250 accredited zoos and aquariums that are part of AZA. And outside of that, there are many, many, many small kind of privately owned, what we used to call roadside zoos. Um, uh, they're not doing the accredited zoo community any favors because when um, uh, we're all painted by the same brush. So when you see a, a, a small private zoo that's poor, everyone assumes that that characterizes all zoos. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. So I, I think what we're gonna see over time, um, the majority of those, those small unaccredited organizations are going to close and fade away. And I think that's, that's a very good thing. Um, so we'll have far fewer zoos. The other thing is, is I believe zoos are going to start, um, at, at least to a degree, we're gonna see more specialization. Uh, instead of, and, and I'll, I'll use African elephants or Asian elephants as, as a conspicuous example, um, instead of seeing zoos that each have two, three, or four elephants each, I think we're going to see zoos with larger and larger herds, and that means fewer zoos are going to have those species, and I think that's a good thing, um, and, and you could say the same thing for all kinds of other species as, as you go along. So I think we're going to see those trends of greater specialization, higher and higher quality, and higher and higher standards. Um, and all of that benefits the zoo community, benefits visitors, benefits the animals, uh, and benefits all of our conservation efforts um, that are associated with that. And then one final question for you. Um, if there's one animal, let's say one mammal, that you could bring into the zoo, what would it be? That is an extraordinarily difficult question. Um, I think maybe I, I can answer in two ways. I can answer, oh gosh, I don't know. Let me just tell you what I'm thinking. Um, there's a species we don't have uh, that I would love for us to have, and that's Okabe. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, and I don't know if this translates for most people, but it certainly does for me, is, is to me, okapi, I think, are as, as close as you can get to something that is truly mythical. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they don't seem like they could possibly be real. And then if you ever have the good fortune to touch one, their hair, their fur, it, it literally feels like velvet. Wow. Um, they are the most remarkable, beautiful, incredible animals that that I think could ever be imagined. So that's one. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I'm I, I'm going to shift wildly now and, and say two more things. I think if you if you tell the story right and if you explain it properly, 
any mammal, really any species, but any mammal can be extraordinarily compelling for a zoo visitor. You just have to know what you're talking about and you have to really identify what's, what's authentically wondrous about that species. But now I'll give you the, the real answer um, and I'll tell you why. I, I think it would be chimpanzees. We, mm -hmm. we don't have chimpanzees um, uh, for visitors here at the zoo. And I would very much like that to happen. And, and, and here's why, for two reasons. Uh, chimpanzees are, are so grossly misunderstood um, and have been so mischaracterized largely by the media for generations that I think it's quite hard to find um, find people who really understand and admire chimpanzees. They are absolutely extraordinary, of course. So I'd like to try and correct those misperceptions um, that people have about chimpanzees. Now, of course, we have spectacular orangutans here at the zoo, but they didn't, they don't come with those same misperceptions. People don't, don't, regard them the same way they regard chimpanzees. But, but the other big question for me, the other big factor um, is that chimpanzees have the ability to make people um, extraordinarily uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, when you see a chimpanzee and, and look in their eyes and look at them directly, lots of people find that a very, very um, disconcerting experience. Um, because of the similarities with humans? Absolutely. They, mm -hmm. They're not prepared to look at another species and realize it, it's just a whisper of a difference between us. Mm -hmm. And that's there with orangutans and bonobos and gorillas, but it's even more magnified with chimpanzees. And I think that's actually a great thing for people to experience because it, it, it suddenly makes you realize um, we have an enormous responsibility to the natural world. And the, the decisions that humans make really determine whether or not a species will survive. Uh, certainly in the wild. And, and chimpanzees are the, are the species that I think of that are the ones that are um, the most compelling in terms of making people question our authority and our influence and our power over the rest of the natural world. And so in that regard, I think it's a a really important thing for people to have that experience. Now, what goes along with that with chimpanzees too is they're absolutely extraordinary individuals. It's an extraordinary species. Um, there's so much to learn and so much to appreciate that that would be the species I would say that, that I would most like us um, to have here at our zoo and, and give that, that experience to visitors. And 
um, give a really, really spectacular proper home to a community of chimpanzees. Right. Yeah. Well, I certainly, I think most mammal watchers would agree with you on the Akapi front. Uh, that is <laughs> also the holy grail for mammal watchers in that, first of all, in order to see one, A, you've got to sort of fight your way through a war-torn country um, with uh, rebels um, all over the place. And then when you actually get there, they're really, really hard to find. Yeah. So those two factors mean that basically it's one of those species that hardly anyone's ever seen in the wild. Um, so, well, here's hoping that one day you'll get uh, both chimpanzees and okapis uh, in, in, into the zoo. That'd be fantastic. Rob, thank you so much for this. It's been absolutely fascinating insight, both into uh, your work with great apes, but also um, the work of zoos and um, how they uh, may or may not change in the future. So thank you so much for taking the time for being with us. Yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charles. And, and um, uh, please continue your wonderful, wonderful work uh, uh, promoting conservation and promoting an interest in, in biodiversity, especially mammals. I, I'm so appreciative of, of what you're doing. Thank you. You've been listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast.